Okay, so if we want to like create a date night, then what we need to do is have a really big belly laugh, turn out the lights, start having like a dance party. Okay, and what about singing? True, deep, helpless, slightly embarrassing laughter. Yeah. Yeah. The kind where you like sort of can't breathe and it's ridiculous. And by the time you get to the end of it, you're not laughing at the thing you were laughing at. You're laughing at each other laughing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Laughter is a remarkably like orgasm, actually. Uh, it is this involuntary rhythmic contraction of your diaphragm muscles. And it only happens, well, it's most likely to happen in situations where you feel profoundly relaxed and trusting. Okay. And I used to do a lot of yoga and that would get me into my Zen mode. But I am now a mother of a three-year-old who sometimes wakes up earlier than what he wants to and he just wakes up crying. And that is a jolt to my system, just being, I'm being woken up by someone else who's crying and inconsistent consolable. So I can't actually say to my son, you know what, I'm a bit stressed with the crying. You hang there while I'll just go and do some yoga. Um, I'll come right back to you. So what do we do in those circumstances where we're stressed, but we can't actually process it? Let's shift gears a little bit here and move away from, I guess, focusing so much on, on pleasure and sexual desire. And let's move more into stress and how that can impact on our lives. Can you just walk us through what the stress cycle is? Now, Emily, I would love to get your opinion on something. I know how I feel about it, but just to hear it from your expertise, what do you think about this idea that a lot of um, other experts out there talk about just doing it? If you don't feel like having sex, what you need to actually do is just start having sex and the more that you have it the more you enjoy it welcome back to the podcast love in the age of children my name is julia nowland this is a second podcast featuring emily nagoski in the first one we talked about sex in context This second episode with Emily, we're really going to focus on the stress cycle and what you can do to interrupt it or change it, particularly when it impacts your sex lives. Literally every moment, not just every waking moment of our lives is an opportunity for us to have stress activated in our bodies. And the stress is a physiological event. It's not just this like sort of idea. It is a biological phenomenon where your adrenaline levels go up, which accelerates your heart rate and your attention shifts. So you're like focused just on the here and now and solving the problem right in front of you. And you lose creativity and spontaneity and a desire for play. And along with your desire for play and creativity and exploration goes your desire for sex right out the window along with it. And your digestive system shuts down, your immune system shuts down, your reproductive system shuts down. So there's all these real biological phenomena happening. But the stress response is because it's a physiological process. It's like all the rest of our physiological processes. It's a cycle that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, like digestion. My sister hates it when I use this analogy, but it's like digestion. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you don't get all the way through the cycle, some not-so-great things can happen, right? Mighty uncomfortable. 
yeah, super. And it builds up. <laughs> like our bodies will hold on to that shit. Oh, sorry. <laughs> For as long as it takes, but eventually, like, it's all going to come out. Um, so we have to give. Right. <laughs> yes. 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 I have so many stories I could share right there, but I'm just going to go to. So we have to help our bodies. What happens with our stress? It's supposed to help us with things like being chased by a lion. When you're being chased by a lion, what do you do? You run. So your body is doing this active thing, trying to solve the problem. We are almost never chased by lions. Unfortunately, our stressors are things like take traffic. Is there traffic in Australia? Oh, yeah. Probably some, right? I asked that question. Well, what are the things that stress you out? I asked that question in London. And the lady right in the front row goes, light rail. (laughs) So whatever your commute is, right? Like you finally get home and your shoulders are trying to be your earrings and your whole body is like tense. Like, do you feel like you've just like escaped and saved your own life? No, you like the stress is still there even though you got out of the traffic, so the stressor is gone, so you need to do something for your body to help it to get to the end of the cycle. Chapter 1 of Burnout is literally a list of 12 things you can do, but physical activity has got to be the first one, right? Yeah. And uh, physical exercise is good for you. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) But, like, we all know that, right? But this is the why physical activity is so good for you because it is the thing that most efficiently transitions your body out of stress into a place of peace and calm. It says to your body, you have escaped this threat to your life and your body is now a safe place for you to be. Fortunately, affection is also one. Um, So uh, there's the 20 second hug is one of my favorite pieces of advice. So 20 seconds is a potentially awkwardly long time to hug someone. You have to really like and trust them. And that's the point. You put your body against this other person's body and you hold each other and you take some deep breaths. Uh, Suzanne Iacenza, the sex therapist, calls it hugging until relaxed. You feel a shift in your chemistry where you're completing the cycle. Your body's going, oh, right. When I'm with this person, I've come home. I have come to a place of safety. Obviously, this only works if your relationship is in a place where you can hold each other that way. Um, But that's that's how you create a context of feeling safe. Uh, there's breathing, there's mindfulness activities, there's a creative self-expression, the arts. In We live in a modern culture where uh, large-scale expressions of emotion are unwelcome. So where do you put your frustration? Where do you put your rage? Where do you even put your large-scale joy when it's too big to fit into like a you know, room full of white people who don't know how to deal with feelings? Yeah. Um, and what you do with it is you make art. You turn it in, you like get it out of your body and you put it into something that you make. Me, it's writing for my sister. She's a professional musician, so she does it for a living, literally, of purging rage. There's also imagination. This is the one that really did it for her uh, because she did physical activity because, you know, she does what she's told six days a week on the elliptical machine. And she had never experienced the like shift in her body chemistry that I have experienced. I'm a natural exerciser and I get the thing. I go for 20 or 40 minutes and my body just goes whoosh and it's all gone. Um, Never in her life has my identical twin sister had that experience, but she started using her imagination. We know that imagination can activate a stress response. If just sitting there thinking about traffic 
makes your shoulders tense and your heart beat faster. That's your imagination activating a stress response. Fortunately, it can also complete it. So she's on the treadmill or the elliptical machine. And she starts, instead of like listening to a podcast or watching TV or reading a magazine, she imagines herself as Godzilla stomping on the school where she was trying to get a doctorate and was like so stressed out and she's a parking lot in the bursar's office and her faculty advisor. And when she used her imagination in this way, her brain doesn't know the difference between actually destroying something and just really vividly imagining destroying something. Mm -hmm. So when she got off the elliptical machine, then she wasn't just tired and hot and sweaty. She felt like, whoosh, everything had changed in her chemistry. She was ready to take on the next challenge. So uh, even if physical activity hasn't worked for you, you, and not everyone is a natural exerciser, not everybody has access to a way to move. Some people have chronic pain or chronic illness or all, just or just hate exercise. Yeah. Uh, there are plenty of other things that you can do to complete the stress response cycle. The one thing you can't do that's not going to work is just telling yourself to relax. Yeah. Because if <laughs> telling yourself stuff, try not to think about a white bear. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just relax? How about you just like let that stress go? Just relax. No, what's the matter with you? Just relax. You're still stressed out? Why are you still stressed out? Just relax. Everything's fine. Like it's not going to, isn't it? You got to have to do something with your body. Stress is a physiological event that has to be processed physiologically. Yeah. Does that make sense? And you're like, yes, yes. <laughs> and people either love that or they think about how much detritus has built up between them and their partners and they're like this is going to be so much work so the question is is it worth it what does it do for your relationship to have that sexual connection the couples who sustain a strong sexual connection yes have a strong friendship with trust at the foundation of their relationship and they prioritize sex It matters for their relationship. They decide that it matters that they engage with each other sexually. And it's not a priority for every couple. I am not a sex educator who's like, yeah, sex, everybody needs a sexual connection. No, it's not for everybody necessarily. Or it's not for certain phases in your relationship where you're like, sex is just not on the radar for me right now. That's, that is like an okay thing to go through. And you, I really recommend people sit down and think for themselves, what is it that I want when I want sex? Because it's not just orgasm. You can have an orgasm by yourself. When I want sex with my partner, what is it that I'm actually wanting? What do I feel like is pushing me to connect with this person? Because though sex is not a drive, connection, love is a drive. We literally die without it. And especially people who've been gender socialized masculine, who've been taught First of all, that the only acceptable way for them to give and receive affection is through sex. Mm-hmm. So they can't feel connected to their partner unless they're engaging sexually. And also, they may be taught that their value as a person, as a man, lies in their ability to get the sex, right? So uh, when their partner says no, they're not just saying no to the sex. They're saying no to connecting emotionally, which is like telling a starving person no to bread, not because of the sex, but because of the love and connection. And you're also saying no to like your masculinity, your whole identity as a man is on the line when you ask for sex and your partner turns you down. Um, So it feels like a very big deal 
but you can only understand that it's not it's not the sex that's the problem. It's feeling like your identity is tied to another person's consent to sex. It's feeling like the only way you can give and receive affection is through sexuality. So solutions, sure, let's fix the sex stuff, but also like let's learn ways to experience affection, to give and receive love outside of a sexual situation. Let's talk about how let's disconnect your sense of uh, personhood, your value as a human from your sexual behavior. Right. You separate the process of dealing with your stress or from the process of dealing with your stress. So like your body wakes up in a jolt of adrenaline hearing your child cry. You go and you like deal with the stressor and you are like calm and like oh, peaceful and soothing and resting uh, and whatever it takes to get the kid back to sleep. And then your body is like and the glorious, terrible thing about our bodies is that they will wait. They will hold on to the stress for as long as we need them to until you are ready to go in and like let it out most of us are walking around with you know years or decades of incomplete stress response cycles sort of gradually degrading some organ system or other you know where stress lives in your body uh and but then as soon as we grant it the opportunity to complete it will take the opportunity as long as we give it the opportunity. So you don't have to do it right then. And it is often, especially for humans, so frequently the need to like postpone your actual feeling of your feelings until a more socially appropriate time. So like your jerk boss or colleague being a jerk in the meeting and you have to smile and be nice, especially women. Mm-hmm, mm, sorry, you feel that way. Okay. Thank you for that feedback. Mm-hmm, yeah. Right. And then you get to a socially appropriate place and go like chop a lot of wood or do the yoga or taekwondo or whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah. Crying is actually one of the evidence based strategies uh, because it's your body like releasing the stuff. A lot of people have been raised to believe that crying, crying doesn't solve anything. Yeah. Maybe it won't fix the actual stressor, but it does deal with the stress itself. It is letting your body move to the end of the stress response cycle so that you can be in a better state of mind to address the actual stressor. Mm-hmm. Crying is great. Laughing is another one. Not the like polite kind of laugh, but like helpless belly laughter, especially laughter with other people mm-hmm. is an evidence-based intervention for changing your body chemistry and getting to a relaxing place. What a great thing to do as like your ritual to get into a sexy state of mind is to laugh with your partner. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If your relationship is really good and you have a long history of great sex, then you have the skills that it takes to like, just make a plan and do it and have it work out well. But if, so I, I, I said this whole story to uh, some friends of mine. We were in a bar drinking, and they're like, just hypothetically, we've got two small children. We've been married for 10 years. How, how do couples, you know, manage to keep a sexual connection alive? And I said the thing. I was like, you put your body in the bed. You let your skin touch your partner's skin. And one of the people in the couple literally, like, cringed away from me and went, oh. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so this is a couple for whom the just do it advice is not going to work because the problem the reason the desire wasn't there is because the pleasure wasn't there she didn't like the sex they were having so of course she didn't want it Durr. 
So they had to figure out the way uh, sex therapist and researcher Peggy Kleinplatz put this is what kind of sex is worth wanting. She does research that she calls uh, uh, optimal sexual experiences research, studying people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives. And this sort of like planned sex where you like make a date and you show up to the thing having prepared for it is a key feature of the sex lives of people who have extraordinary sex lives. It's not about spontaneous. Spontaneous desire doesn't show up anywhere in their explanation of what makes their sex lives extraordinary. What makes it extraordinary is not how much they desire it. It's how great it is. So their motivation to like do the preparation that it takes comes from knowing that it's going to be great when they show up. Yeah. So if you have, if you're a couple that's already having great sex when you do it, then yeah, just like set yourself a date and do it. But if you're a couple, then I know sex therapists who suggest even doing simple things like the early, uh, uh, sensate focus stages where you just like touch each other one at a time and the couple comes back and is like, nope, we didn't do our homework. We didn't do anything. Uh, and this, it's like, this is a couple where they don't even sit right next to each other on the couch. Yeah. They can't tolerate having their partner's hand on their knee. Mm-hmm. They are not ready to, like, just do it. They need to repair all of the damage that has been caused by the months or years of, the, I don't know what's wrong with me, but your criticism isn't helping. Or if you loved me enough, you would want me. Or like, I, you're you're the broken one. You just need to fix it. Can't we just give you a pill that'll fix it and make you want the sex? Yeah. Um, and the person with responsive desire has often been raised with the idea that spontaneous desire is the only normal way to have desire. Their partner believes that too. They both believe they're broken. They try things to fix the broken partner. Those things don't work because there's not a problem to fix. But that just, because the things don't change it, you feel even more broken and does, hey, does feeling like your sexuality is broken, does that hit the accelerator? make you like even more turned on? No, it completely hits the brakes. So the more you try, the more it fails, the more it hits the brakes. So when you've gotten sucked into this vortex of the criticism and self-criticism and the chasing dynamic of like one person's always asking, the other person's always saying no, and they both feel terrible all the time, you have to undo that damage so that people can find their way back to each other. I wish it were as magical as you just show up and it happens, but it doesn't just happen. You have to create the context that allows it to happen. Spectacular. Singing is creative self-expression. It is uh, like Primal Scream, only just with more structure. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, like, we have, there's a whole thing about... And again, my sister is a professional musician. She's actually a choral conductor. She leads group of people in singing together because of the magical thing that happens to our bodies when we sing, and especially when we sing together. Yeah. We are these massively social group. Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist, calls us 90% chimp, 10% bee, because we're so social. And music and dancing are a magic trick, a key into a portal to a different dimension Sex also is one of those, like, key into, like, a different dimension where you're not just you, but you are this shared thing that is both you and you and your partner blending together into one thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That'd be great. Yeah. Have, so, like, a great laugh. Yeah. Uh, 
let's add to that since we're like making up a fantasy sort of ritual date night let there also be like the ritual finishing of the dishes by whichever partner is usually not responsible for the dishes or the laundry laundry actually shows up a lot in uh piggy klein classes interviews with people who have great sex because there's a lot of laundry involved in sex often so like finish the laundry so, like, right before the, the way you start the belly laugh is the partner who usually does the laundry just like lies in bed, relaxed and naked, and the partner who doesn't usually do the laundry comes up with a last load naked and is like, hey, baby, I did the laundry. I'm going to put these things away. I'm going to hang up your t shirts on a hanger, even though it makes no sense to hang a t shirt on a hanger, but that's the way you like it, baby. I'm going to do that for you. Let me just bend down and get these boxers. Uh, so that way you have like feeling cared for and feeling a sense of partnership and we're on the same team, but also we're playful about it and have a sense of humor and can feel relaxed and loving. Uh, and then that transitions into the dance party and the dance party transitions from like just you dancing to dancing and touching and dancing and romping and dancing and making out. And yeah, date night. Yeah. I love that. This is awesome. We should make this into like an international day. This is awesome. I'm enjoying this. We should make this into like a like an international day. Right now. <laughs> like let's have it be international sexy dance party. But it has to start with belly laughter and laundry. And it doesn't have to end in sex if they don't want it to. Yeah, that's the thing is I in one of the talks I gave recently I told this story about how, like, I, I took my own advice. I was traveling a lot. So, like, if my partner and I didn't schedule sex, sex would never happen. And this one time we scheduled it, and I showed up, and I put my body in the bed. I let my skin touch my partner's skin, and I was so stressed out, I just burst into tears and then fell asleep. And, if like, if that's what happens, that is what happens. And maybe there was some part of my partner's brain that was like, I guess I'm not having sex today. but. He didn't show that to me. What he showed me was that he was there for me in this moment when my body wasn't even showing up the way I wanted it to show up. Like it was just beat. Uh, and the fact that he was there for me in that moment was like caring and patient with me, sort of like put money in what John Gottman calls the emotional bank account, the relationship bank account, so that like later on when my body was in a better state, uh, I was motivated and ready and felt connected and cared for and like he was really there for me. So if sex is not what happens, like sometimes that is not what where our bodies are at. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you feel after you woke up from your sleep? Oh my god, so much better. Yeah. I had like this slight sort of like, you know, self critical beating myself up, like, damn it. Like I I should have been able to blah blah blah, because even I have these voices in my head still, because we all have our voices in But I like I because I know this stuff, I could just like tell myself, you know what, I was really stressed out, I was really exhausted. Sex is not a drive. Sleep is sleep one. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. And like I gave my body what it needed. I paid off my sleep debt. I felt physically so much better and I felt connected with my partner, mm. even though we didn't connect in the way we had planned to. Well, Emily, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I have learned so much myself. Um, is there anything that you want to wrap up with? I, you picked like the really important things, context, understanding how to create a context that works for us, um, and responsive desire, knowing that it exists, knowing that it's normal, 
knowing how to make it work in your relationship and that the number one thing you can do, if there's a partner with responsive desire and you want to make sure your sex life is terrible, make sure you judge that person's responsive desire and makes them feel broken because it's not as good as having spontaneous desire. Mm-hmm. Um, the only piece I would add is in making sure you think through what the skills are that you use to transition from like, I just got home from work and I've got all these things to do and I'm never in the mood. So how do you get from like finishing the last load of laundry or like doing the last of the dishes and putting the kids down into a sexy state of mind? What does that transition look like? Part of it's going to be completing the stress response cycle. Part of it's going to be connecting in some way with your partner. Part of it is going to be There's a thing in game design research that they call the magic circle, where you step into this sort of imaginative space, certain parts of your identity are left behind, and only the parts of your identity that you want come to the fore. So for a lot of people, this is going to be like shedding your parent identity, stepping into the magic circle, leaving that behind, and bringing forward the erotic, loving person, Mm -hmm. uh... And exactly how that happens is different for different people. And I think people judge themselves and maybe their partner if it takes deliberate effort to transition from one state of mind to another. Because, you know, it didn't used to take effort to transition early in the hot and heavy dating. You just like you were there. You were ready. But were you really like you spend all day getting ready for a date? Yeah, exactly. Like you plan that stuff. Yeah. Um, And that was the amazing Emily Nagoski, uh, who is a best New York Times bestselling author uh, and sexual educator. If you want to know more about Emily and the work that she does, uh, the link to her website is down below. Thank you so much for listening.